if you want to turn to John 2, and I'm going to read through verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. They what? They believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Amen. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would just pour over us and help us to fully grasp and understand the meaning of this sign, this miracle. Lord God, I ask you would open up our hearts, open up our souls, that we can fully hear from your Holy Spirit. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. So as we've been walking through this letter, Pastor Ed, well, yeah, Pastor Ed, Pastor Corey and Brother Ed have made it clear that John is boldly declaring that Jesus is God, period. Also, as we go through this theme, as we walk through this entire book, John is showing us that the, showing us the entirety, the, the glory of Jesus and who he is. Just look at John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory was of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, I think John wrote this so that we can today could, sh could share and be included in the amazing privilege as we join in all the saints and say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. See, this understanding is immensely important. Verse 16 and 17 then go on and they sum this up. Verse 16. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. Amen for that. And for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through who? Through Jesus. See, hindsight is always twenty twenty, And when God gives us an eye to see the glory of Jesus, his beauty, his greatness, his worth, that understanding is precious. Seeing his glory and receiving him through grace into our lives. Grace to love and grace to rejoice. Grace to live forevermore. Grace to stand up out of the ashes and to praise him. That's all around grace. From grace to grace. What I mean, it's, it's no accident that John has been building us up through chapter 1 to make it to how he starts chapter 2 with this sign, that first sign, that miracle of changing the water to wine. It's not an accident that he put in verses 14, 16, 17 that he wrote this out. He's saying, look at this because I want you to be prepared for what I'm about ready to, to tell you. Right before I'm going to release this story of Jesus changing the water to wine. Hopefully you see what I mean as we go through this. So kind of keep those, those verses in your back pocket. But I, I'm choosing to remain in this, this section of this chapter. I was actually going to look at going through the whole thing, and I felt drawn to looking at our authority. But I felt the Spirit saying, no, hold, hold the reins. Stop right there. We need to focus in on what this sign what this miracle really means 
We all know the story really well. Of the 35 recorded miracles that Jesus has done through all the Gospels, seven are found in John. But this particular sign is only found in John. It's not in the other synoptic Gospels. It's only here. Sometimes, because the story's fame and the prevalence, we all know the story of Jesus turning the, the water to wine. It becomes common. It becomes familiar to us. This is always dangerous because we, we tend to find a, a way just to read over it. Like, oh, that's a cool story. Cool story, bro. And then we keep on going with the rest of it. But we need to be careful to not just read over this like we would read a children's story. I feel like it's something else. If you, really, if you, if you grow up and you're reading your kids all these different Bible stories with the pictures and everything, we, we tend to picture that as adults. We stay in that place. We grow dull in our mind. sometimes we really need to just sit back and recognize this for what it is because we fail to recognize the significance of what this story is as a tool for evangelism. It's a perfect way to evangelize to those who do not know Jesus. Even for most of us, we fail to see the purpose of the true nature of what Jesus really did here, and then we fail to apply it to our own lives, to die to our old man and become completely purified by his blood. See, this, this story is more than just a cool story about Jesus' neat party trick. It's, it's more than just a flex on how much power he had. And, and I would also say, contrary to some commentaries, it's more than just a start to his ministry. Thanks, Mom, for helping me get out the door. It's more than that. It's so much more calculated that that's what I wanted to grasp today, that this was on purpose. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. It wasn't just a a shove out the door from his mom saying, hey, will you do this, this cool saving grace for me? There was a purpose to it. Jesus knew why he was doing it. And we have to step out of that box that, that this was just the, state, the basic start to his ministry. See, this was a dramatic declaration that everyone around in that wedding would have known exactly what he just did. They would have known what it meant. It would have had such cultural meaning to them that they would have, I think that we, we are separated from that a little bit within our culture. But the people of this day would have grasped it entirely. Matthew uh, chapter 13, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Now pause right there. I want you to understand that this miracle, I would say, is a parable in action. That's why John says it's a sign, not necessarily a miracle. It's a parable in action. Verse 11, he answered them and said, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of the people have grown dull. I want us to be careful that as adults that we don't allow our hearts to grow dull to what is written in Scripture. To complete understanding of the significance of changing water to wine, especially in the vessels that they were changed in, is huge. And there's something more to discover about Jesus when we get, get to dig deeper into this. Especially when we can apply it to our own life, there's aliveness in that miracle story. It's more than just the start. It's, it's actually a foretelling. It's, it's a foreshadowing of his death. It's talking about his hour. His action of removing sin forevermore, the power of his blood. So we have to be careful to not grow stale in our thinking, but to think as children do. We have to not be too timid or scared to ask our Father in heaven those bold questions saying, Lord, there's got to be more to this. What do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? I feel like sometimes we, we are... We don't want to step out of that comfort zone. We just want to just read on through it and get to the next chapter. 
Recently, I've been building up a barn on my property. I've been using the timbers and the lumber from my property and, and the surrounding area. And so the other day, I was out with Elijah, and we were, I was doing my thing. I'm, I'm measuring, doing pencil marks, cutting, doing, doing all that thinking work. Well, Elijah, he was in a, a chipper mood, and he's following me around. He's asking question after question after question, which is really sweet. He's in that age that he just has to ask all those questions, which for all you parents out there, I think you know where I'm, I'm leading with this. Eventually, those questions lead into just being kind of that white noise in the background, and you can't fully think about what you're doing. And so I'm kind of alarmed in the moment, though, because Elijah says, Daddy, why do you, why do you just keep saying because? <laughs> okay, I'm caught. I'm found out. Because I just got in the mode of saying, well, because, buddy. Well, God made it that way, but I, I, I don't know, son. I, it's, just, it's just that way. Because. Well, it made me stop, actually, because I realized here is a child with the mind of a child asking beautiful questions. He is growing. He's learning. He's learning how to be big daddy, as what he always says. I have to learn how to be a big daddy. I need to celebrate that and not just say because. That means I need to slow down. What I feel is important isn't as important as pouring into my son. Amen? So I need to stop what I'm doing. Who cares if I'm delayed drawing a pencil mark across a board? I need to answer him why a caterpillar has fuzz on it or something like that. <laughs> More than just saying because God made it that way. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> because God made it that way. <laughs> Point being is we can't place ourselves in that dull, adult, mundane way of thinking. And I want to encourage us to have that mind of a child and say, Lord, why? Why the water pots of stone? Why did you speak to your mom that way? Why did you do this miracle? Why did you go to the wedding? Why, why, why? Don't be scared of asking the why questions, amen? I have to admit, I was... I have been guilty of this. And I've grown up reading this story, and as a child in my younger years, I did ask those questions. Lord, why did you do this and that? Well, I have to say I didn't work very hard at trying to actually find the answer of what those were. I just learned to read over it. And I have to admit, of those 35 miracles that Jesus has done, I can't say I've dug into them like I've dug into this one. There's a danger there. I mean, even if you look at the story of Jonah, you think it's just a, a story of Jonah and he was swallowed by a fish and three days later he was spit up on a bank. Well, that's how the storybooks, they have showed Jonah being swallowed by a fish and he builds a campfire in the belly of the whale and, and then he's spit up onto the bank. But really it's showing what's foretelling what Jesus is going to have to go through. You see, Jonah wasn't just in the belly of a whale when Jonah talks about the seaweed wrapping around his head and falling down to Sheol, Jonah died. And then three days later, he was raised again. And God sent him on his mission. Sounds familiar, right? Jesus came, he was crucified, he died, he went to Sheol. Three days later, he rose again. Every miracle, every story has a purpose. And we cannot read past it. Can we do that? Amen. So what about these questions? What am I talking about? Well, it's questions like, why did he call his mother woman? Why not mom? What about, why was he so abrupt to her? He wasn't rude, but he was short. Why does he say no and then do it anyway? And then even when he said no, why does she look at the servant and say, do whatever he said to do? It's almost like she just chose not to, hear his no answer. Or why did he choose to fill those large water pots of stone used for purification instead of just filling up the old or the original amphoras that, that held the wine in the first place? That'd be easier, right? They already have the ladles there. They're ready to dip the wine and, and serve it. Or why not make it like the miracle with Elijah and the widow and with the flour and the oil and where everyone's cup just never runs out 
Lord, the amphoras never run out. Why not do the miracle that way? That'd be pretty cool. Was, was the reason for him filling all those water pots so he could flex and say, hey, look how powerful I am? I mean, that, recognize, that's 180 gallons of wine. To put that in perspective, that's 900 bottles of wine. It's a life worth of wine for this new bridegroom. He's set up. And then why did he turn the water to wine in those jars and, and not the cup? Did he turn it in the cup? Was it just for the master of ceremonies or was it for everybody? Is the vessel even important, the cup versus the jar? Why so much wine? See, I've, I've had all these questions growing up and I didn't ever investigate that. And then in my maturity, as I grew, I, I learned to start diving into some of these questions and ask, okay, why? Why did he do this? So I'm going to cover some of these. I don't think I'm going to get to all of those questions, but I'm going to try. I think you'll understand once we go through this what the answer is. Now, I have to say that it's always a mighty good Sunday when you get to declare the goodness of God and show the glory of Jesus. Amen. And I would say that's the overarching answer of why he did this miracle is because of the glory of Jesus. It's for his glory that he started his ministry with this type of a miracle. But even separate from that, I, I think there's more under the surface. Like I said earlier, it's a foretelling. He is actually trying to make a point. Because you break this down from talking to his mother to the water pots of, of, of um, jar, the jars, the purification jars, to the bridegroom. He make, the bridegroom, he makes a point all the way through. It's not just a miracle. See, after the story of the wedding in Cana in John 2, 1 through 10, John says in verse 11, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, his what? His glory. And his disciples believed in him. So here John puts a focus again on seeing the glory of Jesus. His disciples saw his glory and they believed in him. Now, I always question, did they not believe in him before this? I mean, they left everything they knew and had and walked with him, so they had to believe in him a little bit. But I think they probably believed in, in him as a teacher. But seeing what he did and the foretelling of this miracle, they really believed in him as the Messiah. So I want to break down all these different questions so we can answer all these, so we can dive into what this really means. So let's start with the woman. Let's look at verses 3 through 5, Jesus' interaction with his mama. It's here I want to answer those questions on why did he call his mother woman, and why was he so harsh or abrupt with her? So verse 3, and then they ran out of wine. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says, you do, or says to you, do it. I think Jesus' words here were intentional. They were intentionally chosen to reveal the radical allegiance to God's will above his mother's will and above all human attachments and affections. See, this is a surprising response. And I think Jesus knew it was surprising when he said it. And I, and I think John knew it would be when he recorded it. There is nothing cultural that says a man cannot call his mother the title mother. Why didn't Jesus just, just say, mother, what does this have to do with me? Why does this concern me, mom? But Jesus says, woman. His response isn't disrespectful, but it's just abrupt unexpected. It may be like calling her ma'am in some context of today. Now, can you imagine your mama coming up to you and, and saying, asking a question or ask for help in some family emergency, and you say, whoa, ma'am, ma'am, that ha has nothing to do with me. How many here would get a slap up the back of the head? <laughs> Not to say my poor mama is probably used to me being abrupt, so she wouldn't be too surprised. But it's kind of alarming to see Jesus speak to her in this way. Again, probably not in a rude way, but he's just separating her from mama to another woman. 
You see, I think this answer, in this answer, Jesus felt the burden to make it clear that not only is his mother and his brothers and sister to, to them, but to all to the rest of us. That because of who he was, physical relationships on earth would not control him in his ministry. His mother and his physical family would have no special advantage over what he was doing. They would not guide his ministry in any way. Jesus had to work hard against this assumption in his day that his physical family had an inside track or an influence over his ministry. Recall the time in Luke 11 when the woman in the crowd raises her voice and says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said to her, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He was always trying to shift the relationship of his family into his relationship with his heavenly father so that he could walk in his ministry unhindered. In other words, people thought there, was, there would be a special spiritual advantage to being the mother of Jesus. We still see that today. We need to step, or step away from that. But Jesus, I think very plainly here, cut that assumption off. He separated himself. And he took that focus of, it, of his attention to physical relationships to the focus of him and his heavenly father. See, when Jesus responded, woman, what does this have to do with me? His tone is saying, your relationship with me as mother has no special weight here. You are a woman like every other woman. My father in heaven, now any human being, determines what miracles I perform. And the pathway into my fav favor is by faith, and it's not by family. It is his tone in that moment that he's saying, I'm separating myself from my family, but I'm aligning myself with my heavenly father. Amen. This takes me back to why I started or I shared John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. We see the glory of an obedient son, his radical allegiance to his father in heaven. We have seen his glory, glory of the only son of the father. That is his purpose here. That is why he is saying woman and not mama. He is separating himself and saying, I follow my father in heaven. But why so abrupt? Because Jesus has told us the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like man manner. The son is the father. He is his son. And he does everything he says. But how about some of my questions on why did he say no to her? Or really he kind of deflected the question. Why did he deflect it, but then do it anyway? And then why does it seem like she didn't really take his answer and then just looked at the servants and said, well, do whatever he says? Well, I believe a few things. Number one is communication, 90% of that is body language. You guys hear my words, but you're really seeing my facial expressions. You're seeing my movements, my hands move. That's 90% of all communication is that. And so we don't know the full body language that took place in this. Maybe there was some joking involved. Maybe there was real sternness. Maybe she was able to see what he was saying in his face, and she knew exactly what he was talking about. That could be. Another explanation is, or thought, is that she has seen him do this miracle before. Who knows? Maybe this is not the first time that Jesus has turned water to wine. Maybe he's been doing this for years in their household. Why have this earthly stuff when you have stuff from heaven? I mean, that's a true vintage right there. That's the good stuff. So maybe she's saying, oh, I, I have the man that can fix this problem right away. I don't know. Maybe that, that could be a reason. Another one could be that she knew her son well enough that she knew what this kind of miracle would mean. Mary may have understood that her son was starting his ministry. She saw the, the gathering of the disciples and through the spirit of understanding, she saw what wine represented with what is going to take place in his life. She could have been walking in, 
with the Father in this and saying, I know what it would mean for you to change those water pots made for purification into wine and then serving it. So I'm going to let Jesus know of this problem. It could be. Another one that I feel probably is it is Mary is going up to him looking for the short-term solution for the problem she had at hand. She was probably involved in this wedding in some sort of way that she even knew that there was no more wine. So she runs up to the man in her life and says, son, knowing who he is, can you solve this problem for me? But in his tone and in the response that he gives her, she instantly becomes fully aware of what he's talking about. She grasps it. She accepts it saying, okay, I hear your tone. I know what you're talking about. So she concedes. She steps back and says, and looks at the servants and says, you do whatever he says. If he says to do nothing or if he says to do whatever it is, you do it. But she is taking herself out of the picture. That way she can separate herself. She knows what he means by wanting to separate from the family uh, connection. She says, you do you. You now know the problem and you do you. I see that's probably what Mary is, is trying to do here. So then why continue the miracle? Why would Jesus then say all this and then continue in, in filling those large water pots? And then why, why these water pots? Why did John say there was six water pots of stone, which is important, for purification? It seems very specific. Why not just say he grabbed a bunch of earthen vessels over in the corner and filled them full of water? There's got to be a purpose there, right? See, it's very significant that he used these water pots of stone. If he had just used any old amphora, which an amphora in the day was used to hold wine, sometimes they were quite large, sometimes they were small, and they came down to taper at the very bottom that catched, or caught, catched, caught all the sediment, all the seeds and everything like that. So when I say amphora, that's what I mean. So why not just fill the old ones or other jars, other clay vessels? I think this sort of answer is the same as before. It's for his glory that he could fill 180 gallons of water in these water pots over here. It's for his glory to do such a thing. But I want to add that it's for his glory as our ultimate purifier. Say purifier. This is the moment that he is stepping out of the son of Mary. He's stepping out of the special guest at this wedding. He's stepping into the role of the foretelling of, I'm going to purify the sins of the world and let me show you how I'm going to do it. That is what's taking place right here. That's why he's not just going to use these old jars. Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. I think that's also important, but we'll get to that at the end. You see, these water pots, pots were appointed for purification. What that means is these are set aside to make sure that everything is washed and kept clean. That's for the brass basins and the cups that are going to be used for during ceremonial or rit ritual type times. It's a way to wash your feet so that you're clean to even enter into the household. It's for washing only. You do not drink out of these water pots of stone. But then he uses them anyway, and he fills them not only with water to drink with, but wine to drink with. So why would he put the wine in such special pots? Why would he do this miracle in the first place? I want to give you a hint. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What? can make me whole again, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is why. He filled the water pots made for purification with wine.
Jesus said it over and over again. Paul says it over and over again. The Gospels talk about it over and over again. Why do we take communion? What are we drinking? The juice of the vine. Wine. His blood. This is why he did this miracle. There is such purpose to this miracle. Jesus means to point out his own death as the ultimate way to purify for all the sins of the world. This would nullify and replace the Jewish purification rituals. This is why. It's more than just saving a wedding and turning water to wine. It's more than just saving a bridegroom from embarrassment. This was to make a public spectacle of himself. He was making a point with it. But then why does he also say, my hour has not yet come? What's his hour? I have to admit, I always thought his hour was starting his, his ministry. He's telling Mary, it's not time to start my walk yet. No. His hour is the hour of his death in which he will die for sinners and make them pure forever. John 7.30, so they were, seeing, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27. Now, is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. John 12, 23, 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The Bible goes around and around and around and how it tells us what's going to take place. That's why I brought up Jonah, because what happened? He went into the heart of the earth, and then he rose again. Jesus went into the heart of the earth and rose again. What happens if a, a kernel of wheat is buried? Then it rises again and bears much fruit. That is what his hour is. It's his hour of death so that we can be purified. It's when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. This would be the ultimate purification. John says in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, that's God's son, purified us from all sin. That's not just some sin, but that's all sin. Remember when I highlighted the verse in 1, 17? It said, keep that in your back pocket. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We are seeing this take place right before our eyes. That's what I meant by John is building up to the story of the wedding in Cana. The way in which Jesus purifi the Jews purified themselves under the law of Moses is now replaced by Jesus' blood forever. And he is shouting that before everyone in that region. Now, Jesus tells the servants to fill the purification jars with water, to the, and they fill it to the brim. These were not used for drinking, like I said earlier for bathing, for purifying. So it seems to me pretty clear that Jesus wants to say, this is what my hour will look like. I will take the purifi pur um, purification rituals of Israel and place them with a decisively new way to be purified. Namely, with my blood. And keep in mind that in John chapter 6, Jesus said, my blood is true drink. Unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. It makes sense to me that he would fill these jars with his blood, declaring what he is going to do in his hour. It's on purpose that he says to Mary, it's not yet my hour. But then that's why he goes, goes ahead and does it, because he wants to show everybody what his hour is going to look like. I think if he didn't even say this, we'd be like, well, what hour are you talking about? So if he would have just said to her, Mary, it's not my hour, and they didn't complete that miracle, we'd be like, okay, I guess he meant that he didn't want to start his ministry yet. 
No, he's declaring what will take place when he dies. That makes sense? That's why John says a sign and miracle versus a miracle. If he would have said miracle, this would have been a cool way of saving this bridegroom. But because it's a sign, he's showing us what's going to take place. This is an acted out parable. That's why he said it's acted out. It's in the moment. It means something more than just a miracle. Healing a woman who has been plagued with constant bleeding is a miracle. Changing water to wine seems like a miracle, but it's actually a sign. That's the difference between those two. See, him doing this shows us that his purification is going to be final, decisive. It's the ultimate purification for sins. There's no ritual anymore. The Jews, once they believe in Jesus, don't have to have those water pots in their house anymore. There's only one way to be clean. And John tells us this in Revelation 7.14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, the glory of Jesus is that he alone, once and for all, has made us clean. No longer dirty by our grime. No longer dirty by our sins. It's not by our own power, but it's by his See, this is why I, I got a little frustrated in reading some of these commentaries because some of them went through and they didn't quite hit the mark, I don't feel like. Because I had the question on why the water pots of stone. Was the wine turned in the water pots of stone or was it just turned to, to wine in the cup? Some commentaries even said that that wine was, was only turned in the cup for the master of the ceremonies. Hogwash. That would erase the whole purpose for doing the sign in the first place. If it was only in the cup, which that cup had no ties to any spiritual laws, it had no ties to any Old Testament law. The master of ceremony was just a man. He had no tie to any Old Testament law, but these water pots of stone had a tie, and they mean something. They mean purification. The cup doesn't. Of course he turned all six of the stone water pots to wine. All of them. Not just one of them, not just the one they dipped out of, but all of them. And why six? Why was there six stone water pots? Well, the number six in biblical numerology is related to man and human weakness. The evil of the devil and the manifestation of sin. Man was created on the sixth day and God rested on the seventh. Men are appointed six days to labor, and they are commanded to rest on the seventh. A Hebrew slave had to serve six years before he could be released on the seventh year. Six years were appointed to a land to be sown and then harvested. There were six water pots of stone. What are we made out of? From dust you have been made, and to dust you will return. Man is the number six. There are six water pots of stone. There is no Hebrew word for coincidence. We know that. The six jars related to man and human weakness. And then Jesus, the foundation of God's word, made them pure. He is the seventh man. He steps in there and says, I will take the weakness of man, the number six, and I will make it complete. It brings me back to why it's a sign and not a miracle. This is the act of foreshadowing his hour. Just as he destroyed these water pots with wine, he was showing that he would be tearing the veil in two and that he would be destroying the temple. It's the same thing. So when you think about what he did when he tore that veil in two, group these six water pots in with that. Group it all together. It's his declaration. See, this is not just a cute story in how Jesus saved a wedding and a bridegroom from embarrassment. God is 
ultimately fulfilling the law through his declaration of what he did at this wedding. And then even more, and I said it earlier, how Jesus touched on every part throughout this story. Well, let's look at the bridegroom. What's the bridegroom have to do with this? John 2, 9 and 10 shows that the groom was ultimately responsible for making sure there, sure there was enough wine, that it didn't run out, which means it was his shortcoming that he let the wedding run out of wine in the first place. Verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew where it come from. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out good wine, and when the guests have all drunk, then the inferior. Meaning, once you get drunk on the really good stuff, you bring out the yucky stuff. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, of course, the point is, no. No, he didn't save the good wine until now. He let the wine run out. He, that was his shortcoming. He didn't do a good job. No A-plus for you on that day. You see, that's the way it is with grooms on earth. All husbands fail to be all that we are called to be. We all fail in what we're supposed to be. But Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. Jesus, in this time, plays the role of the perfect, all-providing bridegroom at that wedding. He says, this is how I will do it. Human and human weakness fails, but I will never fail you. Your attempt at purification fails, but I will never fail you. Your attempt to supply everything that your guest needs, you fail at that too. I will never fail you. When I do my wedding feast, he says, I will have enough wine. He will provide everything. And then why were those six water pots used for purification empty in the first place? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why did the servants even have to fill them up? Shouldn't it be the rule of the household to the servants that always keep these water pots used for purification full? See, that's what a proper bridegroom would do, especially during a wedding. But that shows the insufficiency of this bridegroom. You see, these water pots represented the best side of Jewish faith and life, but their emptiness declared their insufficiency and that bridegroom's insufficiency to keep them, not keep them full. The way that Jesus manifests his glory at this wedding was to show himself as the all-providing bridegroom. He was showing the way he would run his home. It gives a whole new meaning for Psalm 23. When you think about these water pots being overflowed to the brim with wine, thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. I'm going to have the worship team come up. But as we walk through this, I want to continue in looking at what this water pot of stone means for us. Not only did he show his glory from the start to the end, but he's even declaring that I will provide for you and I will cause you as a water pot of stone to overflow. I will cause you to be ultimately, ultimately purified, completely and holy. That's what he is declaring here. But what does this mean for us today? It slightly still is a cool story, bro, when you're looking at this as a sign, right? It's really neat to see that this was a sign foretelling his hour and death. But what does that mean for you today? What does this mean for you to grow from today? I want to ask you, what water pots do you have erected as hidden idols in your life? And then do those need to be destroyed and covered with the blood of Jesus? Earlier this morning, I talked about John 2.11. This beginning of signs, Jesus said in Cana of Galilee, 
did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So here, John is declaring the goodness of God. He is declaring the glory of Jesus, and in that, his disciples believed in him. They followed him as a teacher. They most likely recognized him as the Messiah. And it isn't just because they saw him use his power that he was given from the Father to change water to wine, all that's cool. What they saw was a man foretell his death and erase everything that they've once done, erase everything they've believed in. That is why they believed. It's time for us to believe that. Too often we try to do this by our own strength. It's time that we lean on him, believe on him, trust in him. We need to turn our hearts of stone to flesh. It's time that we relinquish everything that we are, any way that we are trying to do it ourselves. It's time to get away from that, to step away from that. Look in your heart, your stony heart, and say, in what ways am I trying to make it pure for God instead of allowing God to make it pure for him? Amen? This is why I've shared many times my favorite verse, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you. Oh, it gets me every time. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So I want to ask every believer here, I want you to listen close. And I want you to dig deep. If you have to, close your eyes or look up to heaven. What areas in your life are water pots that need to be purified by the blood of the Lamb? What ways have you set something up in your life to make yourself pure? What actions or beliefs or belongings have you set up in your life to make yourself pure? What things do you do in your household to make your home pure? What ways... Methods do you do your day to make yourself pure? What water pots in your life need to be made obsolete, inert, and destroyed just as the temple was destroyed? These are things that you're trying to make pure through your own works instead of allowing the blood of Jesus to do the work for you. What do I mean? Are you still trying to erase your own sin? In what areas in your life are you trying to earn your worthiness of his salvation? In what areas in your life are you still trying to impress God or trying to earn his favor, his love, or his salvation? What areas are you still controlling by your own power? In what ways are you trying to earn his approval? The true answer to any of these is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can erase all those things. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can make you pure again. Nothing but the blood of Jesus will get you through those gates into heaven. Nothing but the blood of Jesus will help you in your walk right now. Nothing but the blood of Jesus will rise you up out of the ashes through the hell that you're going through to be able to stand up and praise him again. It's not by your own power to make yourself pure and put your church clothes on. It's by the blood of Jesus that you can stand up at all. Amen? This story is a direct attack against man's way to make things pure. There is no water on this planet that is pure enough that can compare with the blood of Jesus. Recognize, just as the disciples recognize in verse 11, believe in him, see the glory of Jesus, submit to him as the perfect bridegroom, place him as your ultimate spiritual head, receive his grace. 
and claim his blood as the all-sufficient method to making yourself pure to stand before his throne of grace. It's time that we trade in our dull mindset as adults and start to think as the babies do so that we can receive what it means to be purified completely. Amen? Go ahead and stand with me. preparing this week I'm going through this and it was alarming to me because I must have had water pots set up because I go to tell Rachel my aha moments through this and the way that the Holy Spirit touched my heart and I couldn't even speak because I just stand in there crying like a little baby in the kitchen that's what the word of God should do in our life not that we're all moved by emotion, but if our heart is so stony that we are never moved when reading his word, then there's a problem. Do you hear me? It's time that we fully relinquish our stony hearts and say, Lord, purify me with your blood so that I can actually bawl over your wor written word. Lord God, I ask that you would do just that. That you would, as you prophesied through Ezekiel, that you would cause our stony hearts to be turned to flesh. Lord, it's my desire that we would grow to learn what it's like to be a child again. To ask those questions that cause us to dig deeper to then be able to be in a place that we are weepy in your presence. Lord, I know I've been here, but there's someone here, Lord, that is so injured by the ways of the world that they can't even look at you and say, Abba. Lord God, I ask that you would pour your love over them abundantly. And Lord, I ask you to pour your love abundantly over your people so that our hearts can be soft for you. Lord, so that we can actually stand up and worship you with our arms stretched high. And we can say nothing but the blood of Jesus. And in that we can worship completely you. Lord God, I thank you for the move of your spirit. I thank you for for your goodness, for your grace, and I just declare all glory and holiness to Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your good work. And Lord, as we stand here and worship you, I declare as one church, we step before your throne of grace to receive all we need and then just to worship you as we enter into heaven in thanksgiving and praise. Lord, we do that now. In Jesus' name I pray.